So the theme I'd like to speak with you about tonight is the theme of making friends with life. In our meditation practice, I think one of the things we come to see, one of the things we at times have opportunity to notice is the ways in which we form relationships to our experience. The ways in which we react and relate to the, the objects and the experiences with which we are in contact. And in many ways, meditation is a process of examining those relationships and those ways of relating and reacting to see to what degree they are in accord with the truth of the situation and to what degree they actually serve us, serve our well-being and the well-being of those around us. And I think it's an important question to, to be looking at, to be asking ourselves, what is our basic relationship to life? How do we approach our existence? How do we look or meet, look to or meet our experience? Our experiences of the world, our experiences of other people, and equally our experience of what we call ourselves. And I think it's useful to look to see are there any underlying assumptions, are there any unspoken or unexamined perspectives that we're holding about how we should relate to life. Sometimes we can, I think, look to the natural world in a way in which we, we see it as something which we're either afraid of and seek to def- defend ourselves from, or something which we, we desire, which we want something of, and therefore seek to exploit. And these two ways of relating, these two expressions that we can sometimes relate to the natural world with, we can equally find ourselves relating to our inner life with. But in relationship to the natural world, it was interesting I found once on reflecting about this, thinking about how, and, and feeling rather sad about how I, when I was a Boy Scout as a, as a young lad, and I wasn't sad insofar as that I was a Boy Scout, but that something that happened in that time was that in our encounters with the natural environment and going out into the bush, as we called it in New Zealand, or the woods you might call it here, we really were taught both to fear the natural environment, that somehow it was a threat to us, that it could take our lives, as in fact it could if we weren't careless. But we were also taught very much that it was okay to chop it down and beat it and um, burn it and do whatever one needed to it in order to survive in the face of that threat. And it seemed in a way that it, it did tend to polarise that way of relating, that way of relating from a position of either fear and needing to defend ourselves from, or craving, desire and wishing to exploit. And it's, it seems it's born of an attitude, it's born of a way of relating that suggests the world around us is something separate from us, something which we're not actually part of. And I think that this, this suggestion, this perspective, is something we need to, 
to question, to consider, to see, is this something that I hold in myself? To see, if I do hold it, is it something that's really true? Is this really the way things are? And if perhaps it's not so true as we might think, how might we seek to relate to our life? How might we seek to relate to the world around us? Might it be different? A few years ago, a a Dharma teacher and uh, green activist, Joanna Macy, wrote a book. I never actually read the book, but the title struck me. And um, the title was World as Lover, World as Self. And it was very interesting, because what it struck in me was how, in a way, that very title was questioning our assumptions that we so often see the world as our enemy or as our opponent. We so often see our experience at times as the problem, as the difficulty. We make it into our enemy, as I said. And here she is proposing the idea that the world is our lover. Equally, we so often see the world as something other than ourselves, something removed and distant from us, or from which we are cut off and separate. And yet, here in this simple title, the proposition that perhaps the world was who we are. The world was in fact ourselves. And it's interesting, I think, how how just sometimes a different way of looking, a different way of seeing can just shake something in us, perhaps touch something. And we might not quite know exactly what it means, but we can feel that something perhaps has shifted inside, or some possibility is opening to us so we may not quite have fully realised what that possibility is. (coughs) And so in looking at how we relate to life, looking at how we relate to our experience, and this is of course what we're having plenty of opportunity to do while we sit and observe. We're looking at our life. We're looking and we're experiencing how we relate to it. We're seeing where we get caught up in patterns of reactivity, patterns that are conditioned habits that perhaps we've done all our lives and never yet noticed clearly. We look and we see this relationship and we might ask ourselves, how is it or how would we relate to our friends? How do we relate to our friends? If we were to think of life as our friend, if we were to think of our experience as our friend, what would that ask of us in terms of relating? And in fact what we might notice if we if we consider how we relate to our friends we don't ask them to be perfect if we do we probably don't have many friends more often what what we're willing to do with those we call our friends who are fortunate to be called our friends we, we recognize that there are those things about them which we value and appreciate and yet almost inevitably there are equally those things that are difficult and challenging about them And this is perhaps even more clearly evident in the realm of personal, close, intimate relationships where there may be many things that we deeply love and other things that drive us absolutely crazy. And yet there's a way in which our appreciation of that which we value gives us the space and the capacity to allow that which we find difficult to be there without rejecting the whole, without getting into struggle with the the whole person that we call our friend. 
And I think this sheds some light on how we might relate to our life. Because it can so often be, I think, for us, that in our passage through this life, <coughs> in the movement of, of our history and our story, we come across experiences, we're exposed to situations which are indeed very painful, very difficult, very challenging. And often what our habit is, what our reaction is, to withdraw from them, to push them away, to somehow seek to avoid them, to distance ourselves in some way. And in that pushing away, that separating, that making of a distance, we, we see other people, we see situations, we even see parts of ourselves as a threat, as an enemy, as something other than a friend. And in that seeing, we push them away. It's sometimes so painful, the things that occur in life. And what we find is that there is this tendency, this habit, that we act out time and time again, that says, if there's something painful in this experience, in this person, or in myself, in fact, that somehow I have to get rid of it, or else I won't be able to survive, or else I won't be able to be happy. And we very often actually take the pain personally. We feel so much that it's something that's being done to me, that it's something about me, something personal, that there's something wrong with me because there's pain in my life. There's something wrong with the world because at times I find it difficult. Or there's something wrong with another person because at times I find them difficult. And, and often in feeling it being done to me, that it's, it's personal, it seems unfair, because what have we done to deserve it? We, we've been trying our best. We've been doing as, as much as we can to live well. And yet, nonetheless, what comes is, at times, incredibly difficult, incredibly painful. There's a story I'd like to share with you that speaks a lot about what is possible in the situation. It's actually a true story from a hospice in America. A woman came into the hospital in a very contracted state. The nurses called her a real bitch on wheels. Few wished to spend time with her. All her life had been a struggle for control. All she did not want or could not have was judged and pushed away from her heart. All that she could get was grasped at feverishly. And so she found herself dying alone in a great deal of pain. She had judged so much, so many and so often, that even her grown children would not visit. For six weeks her isolation and pain increased until one night she came to a point where she could no longer stand the suffering in her back and legs or the pain of her unlived life. Feeling like jumping out of her skin, she began to review her life amidst the pulsations of her pain. Never had it been so clear to her how her intense holding had created such intense pain. Feeling death approached, she remembered herself as a youngster, open and hungry for the world. 
She saw how she had closed down over the years. With a sigh, she let the helplessness wash over her and exhausted, unable to fight another moment, she surrendered, let go and died into her life, died into the moment. Letting go into the pain in her spine and legs, she began to sense, quite beyond reason, that she was somehow not alone in her suffering. She felt what she later called the ten thousand in pain. She began to experience all the other beings who at that very moment were lying in that same bed of agony. At first there arose the experience of herself as a brown-skinned woman, breasts slack from malnutrition, lying on her side, a starving child suckling at her empty breast, her spine and legs twisted in pain. For an instant she became this Ethiopian woman, dying in the mud. Then there arose the experience of an Eskimo Inuit woman, lying on her side, during, dying during childbirth, tremendous pain in her back, hips and legs, and dying the same death. Image after image arose. She was each, dying beside the others. She experienced the 10,000 sufferings simultaneously. The pain was beyond my bearing, she said. I couldn't stand it any longer and something broke. Maybe it was my heart. But I saw it just wasn't my pain. It was the pain. It wasn't just my life. It was all of life. It was life itself. As the days unfolded after this extraordinary experience, Hazel's heart opened more and more to all the others in pain in the hospital. She asked after them constantly, and the room became a place where the nurses would come because it was a room of love. Soon her children came to visit because of the warmth and surrender of her phone call, responding to her plea for forgiveness. Her grandchildren sat on her bed, the grandchildren she had never met, whose heart she had rejected before they were born. For several weeks before her death, Hazel's room became a place of healing, of finished business, and of universal love. an incredibly powerful story. The power of transformation that's never beyond us, no matter how difficult our circumstance, no matter how much pain in our life, no matter how closed we feel. The understanding that she spoke of, to open to the pain of life, to realize that it's not my pain, it's the pain. What a shift this makes when we realize it's not about us personally and that it's not happening to us somehow in isolation. It's not an experience that is removed from any other human being. It is something that all participate in to greater and lesser degrees.
that understanding that it's not mine, that I don't have to own it. The understanding that we don't need to identify with the pain of our life. We don't need to use it to define our experience or to determine the relationship we must have to our life. Because when we understand that it's not about me personally, in a personal way, we're suddenly no longer needing to defend ourselves from it in the same way. Because we realize it's not a statement about us. It's a statement about life. Making friends with life from this understanding, from this perspective, involves, to a significant degree, finding it in our hearts to actually forgive ourselves, to forgive others and the world for the pain we have experienced. To not hold it against ourselves for the things that we might have done that caused pain to others, that caused pain to ourselves. Equally to not hold it against others for the pain they have caused us or the pain they have caused people around them. And this can at times seem to be so difficult. We can have so much justification, so much, it seems, good reason for holding on to our anger, to holding on to the, in a way, the distance, the, the, the hardness of our heart. And it does seem at times that there are situations, there are actions that we observe occurring in the world, that sometimes that we observe in ourselves. That when we see the actions, we see the pain that they cause, it seems so difficult to connect with a place of forgiveness. It seems very difficult not to take it personally. And one thing, uh, in a way, a, a metaphor that I found very helpful, very useful in, in understanding what's occurring in these situations, takes the form of a, in a way, a, a story, which, or not a story, but a, a description of a, an experience, which, as I describe it, just to allow yourself to sense what it would be to be in the situation. If you might be walking, going for a walk in the woods, there's a lot of leaves on the, on the ground, and, and you're walking, you see a small puppy, in the woods, and knowing that puppies are generally friendly and rather delightful creatures, you reach out your hand to, to stroke it in an expression of kindness and friendship. And in reaching out to the puppy, it bites your hand. And just think what would arise as the first response to that. Anger perhaps, some judgment, a bad dog, perhaps even the wish to strike it, to hurt it in return. And then just as all that comes, that anger, the judgment, the wish to strike it or push it away, what you actually see is that the puppy's feet in the leaves, one of the feet is actually caught in one of those traps with the jaws and the spring for catching animals. And suddenly in that moment you realise, you understand why the puppy acts in that way. You see that the puppy isn't acting because it really wants to hurt you. It's not that it's cruel and mean in itself, but that the puppy itself is in pain. The puppy itself is reacting in fear and in pain 
from its own situation. And probably for most of us, in that seeing, that understanding, quite easily we would let go of the anger. We'd let go of the wish to strike or to defend ourselves from the, this creature. And perhaps we'd be more inclined to try and rescue it from the trap, to try and free it from its suffering. And then we might, the next day, be walking in the woods. And again we see the puppy. We reach out to it, a different puppy this time. We see a puppy there, and it bites us again. But this time we can't see its feet, they're in the leaves. We can't actually see the trap. But can we understand that in fact, even when we can't see the cause of the pain, that that's what's behind the action of the puppy. It's very similar, I think, the process that can occur in relationship to others, in, re- in relationship to ourselves. We act at times in ways which can and do cause pain to others, pain to ourselves. And we experience the actions of others that are painful for ourselves, painful to others as well. Is it possible to see in ourselves that when we've acted in ways that caused harm to others, that we acted that way out of our own fear, out of our own pain, out of our own blindness? If I examine my life, if I examine those times when I have done things that I regret, That's what seems very clear, that it has come out of pain, it has come out of blindness or fear. And in seeing that, the one realizes that the response is not to judge or to be critical of that part of oneself that has responded in such a way, not to be harsh, not to be pushing that part away, but actually seeing that that part needs our care, that part needs our kindness. that those parts of ourselves which we find the most difficult, the most painful, are those parts which most call out for us to open our heart to them, to allow ourselves to feel and to be with. And equally in meeting others, in relating to others, when we experience aspects of other people's behaviour that is difficult, that is painful for us, to understand that this comes out of that person's pain. It comes out of their own blindness, their own fear. Really it's the key to unlocking our heart. It's the key to finding a connection to the capacity to forgive, the capacity to allow and to even respond with compassion to that person in that situation equally as we might wish to respond to ourselves or to the the puppy in the story. To see that it is actually possible for us to forgive. We're not bound to hold on to to the struggle, to the fight with the painful aspects of our experience. This is something that meditation asks us to do again and again because 
again and again in meditation, we are faced, we are confronted with difficult aspects of our experience. Whether it be the discomfort that can arise in our body, the pain in the back or the neck or the knee, the difficulties that arise in our heart and mind, the painful emotions, the raw and tender memories of difficult experiences. Whatever it might be, when these come, we're asked to open to them, not to push them away. To not be afraid of the difficult experience. This is what we're asked to do. Raina Maria Roku once wrote, We have no reason to harbour any mistrust against our world, for it is not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them. And if only we arrange our life in accordance with the principle, which tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us as the most alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races? The myths about dragons that are at the last moment transformed into princesses. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us in its deepest essence is something helpless that wants our love. To consider what that means, that perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. Whether that which frightens us be something which is part of ourself or part of another. To learn to trust in the goodness of our own hearts. To trust in the goodness of the hearts of others. To learn this is to no longer believe, to no longer subscribe to the view that because at times actions cause harm, then the person who acts in that way must somehow be bad or wrong or evil. To see that it's really not like that. That so often that that kind of view is just a justification for closing off or for striking out in retaliation. That is not really the truth. Because we see in our own life, in our own hearts, that is not the truth of our experience when we have been that person who acted in a way that caused harm to ourselves or to another. To learn to offer our friendship where perhaps we might have previously held on to rejection, to anger, to polarization. What would that mean for us in our life? What would that mean in our meditation if every experience that we met we were willing to face it no matter how difficult realizing that 
this was actually the way to heal the separation, to heal the divisions that we experience in our life, that we create through the pushing away and through the closing down of our heart. When we learn to trust in our natural capacity for love and for kindness, it's through this that we really learn to make friends with ourselves, with others, to make friends with life. And we also begin to trust our natural place in life. We start to see, to recognize at a really deep level that we're not somehow a mistake or an aberration, that, our, that the difficulties we experience in life is not somehow a punishment for something we've done wrong and that our arrival in this world is not something for which we have to pay a price or go through sort of a, a period of suffering in order to make some compensation for what we have done. It's not like that at all. And that it's not that our existence is something the world seeks to punish us for. We see that but that's just a view that comes out of the, the unwillingness to acknowledge that in life there is pain, equally as there is joy, and that there is sadness, equally as there is happiness, that these things come together, that they're all part of it. And that sense of, of the rightness of our being here, the appropriateness of our being here. It's really, I think, beautifully expressed in a line from the poem, The Desiderata. Which goes something to the effect of Above all, be gentle with yourself, for you are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the birds and the stars. And you too have a right to be here. What does it mean to really offer that to oneself? That sense of just the rightness, the appropriateness of our being here. That this is how it should be. It shouldn't be somehow other. And yet in that, sometimes the amount of pain, the difficulties, the suffering we can experience, it seems that we just can't comprehend why it should be that way. It can seem that it's just too much for us to hold, that one heart doesn't seem to have the space to accommodate the pain that it may be asked to. And sometimes it seems really that the struggle to understand why, why it should be this way, overwhelms us. And when this is the case, one of the most powerful resources we have, one of the most wonderful things we can do, is actually turn to the natural environment, to turn to the, the world around us, to immerse ourselves in it. It has an incredible power for healing and for teaching us that we can hold our life, 
that we can hold our experience. There's a a line or two from a poem by W.B. Yeats called The Stolen Child. It speaks of really the, the difficulty of understanding just why there could be or why there should be so much pain in life. It's actually the, in a way, the chorus refrain of the poem. Come away, O human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. And the final line of the poem, And so he's come, the human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than he can understand. And I think there's a lovely, lovely spirit in that, of, of in a way, entering into the natural world, the waters and the wild, and to do so hand in hand with a fairy, in a way, bringing in a sense of perhaps something magical, something mystical, something beyond the ordinary and the everyday, that can sometimes touch us when we are in the natural world. But there's something about it when we really allow ourselves to connect, when we really allow ourselves to be present, to really directly connect and be intimate with the natural world. And something can happen that's quite mysterious, quite powerful. A famous and much-loved meditation master in Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa, wrote in one of his books how he dealt with people who were experiencing great degree of emotional pain. And what he said was with these people who were in great emotional pain, so what he would do is surround them with metta, with loving kindness, and then send them out into the nature, into the forest, he said, and he would leave them there until they realized they were part of it. To imagine what it is to be in the world, to be in the natural environment, and to stay there until you realize that you're part of it. That so much of our sense of needing to defend ourselves from the world, or from ourselves, or from others, so much of our sense of feeling that our heart just isn't big enough to hold, what it has been asked to meet, to, to find space in ourselves for the pain that we sometimes experience in life, seems impossible because we're just so small, in a way, in relationship to it. And yet when we're in the, in the natural environment, when there's a sense of being part of it all, we, we can sometimes feel that the weight of that pain is shared, is carried, by it all, that we don't actually have to carry it ourselves. That we have to allow ourselves to feel it, yes. But that we're not in any way personally responsible for it. And we have to learn wisely, learn to live wisely in the face of it, and compassionately in response to it. But that we do so in a context of being part of something larger, part of something that is vast, and that is mysterious. And sometimes when we're out 
outside. And we just are touched by that sense of connection. We're just touched by a feeling of intimacy with, of more than just being a part of, but really being indivisible from. And we might we might run our hand through our hair and then we feel that it's not so different from the grass that we may be sitting on as we stroke our hand across it. That we might feel the tears that sometimes run across our cheeks. It's not so different from the rain that clears away the dust in the air. And that the curves of our body, if we move our hand across it, not so different from the hills and the valleys of the earth upon which we walk and the blood that flows in our veins. We can sense sometimes the flowing energy of the rivers and streams as it rushes through our own body. And we see that this that is our experience and so close and so intimate to us is revealed equally all around us. That the sense of it being quite such a different thing starts to recede. That the idea that it's all out there and I'm all over here by myself doesn't really make sense anymore. We, just somehow we intuit, we sense it's not the truth. Even if we can't explain how that is or why that is, we can't explain it to anyone else that it even is so. But something in ourselves has been touched and we know it's been touched because we can feel that something has shifted. And where does this leave us in the face of our experience? Where does this leave us in our, in our process, in our exploration, our learning to, to live in a way that is meaningful, in a way that is authentic? What we discover, what we find out, is that what we're looking for, the understanding, the kindness, the freedom that we seek in life is not something that we can make happen by ourselves. And equally, it's not something that anyone else or anything else can do for us. And this seems like a paradox. It seems, in fact, that that leaves us with no hope. If we can't do it by ourselves, and no one can do it for us. And yet, it's not a paradox. Because the the depths of spiritual practice, the, the, the depths of healing of our heart, the opening of our spiritual journey into a, into a spaciousness, a peace, and a sense of freedom. This doesn't come by ourselves or by another, but from the dissolution of the division between the two. From the letting go of that sense of being separate. So it's not done by this or by that, but by the seeing through the appearance of that separation, the realizing and the understanding of the, the wholeness and the undividedness, which is essentially more true than the appearance of division. And in that there's no problem of capacity to hold both the joy and the sorrow of life. 
There's no problem of capacity. We see that it's just held, that we're not asked to hold it ourselves. And we see that our life, that all of life is really a gift, which we don't have to earn, which we don't have to pay off in any way, but which we're asked to honour by our presence, by our interest in actually opening to it. And we see that in the receiving of the gift, that there's a natural expression of gratitude that comes from us, quite effortlessly flows out of us, as an expression of caring, of kindness and compassion for ourselves, for others, and for the world. And that it's not something that we're doing. And we don't in any way feel that we take credit for that, because it's really just quite the natural expression of life, which we understand ourselves to be a participant in. But truly the, the deepest friendship we can find is the friendship in which we discover the friendship in which we learn to actually live that truth that we and that which we would seek to be friends with are of the same nature. So fundamentally the idea of being anything other than friends of meeting, them, meeting with anything other than kindness really just has no place for us anymore. And we may be left in a, perhaps in a state of grace might be the best way to describe it. A grace where we know in some way that things are different and yet we equally know that nothing has changed. And yet the suffering, the unsatisfactoriness of life can't really be found anymore. That which once had seemed so substantial really seems insignificant because something something deeper has moved into its place or perhaps not moved into its place but revealed itself as having been in its place all along. Could we sit quietly together for a few minutes?
may all beings be free of pain and fear. May all beings be touched by life's blessing. May all beings realize deep friendship with life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.